welcome to MedHub. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Michael. And I'm Aaron. Okay, um, so we're talking about acute inflammation and abscess today. So just some general terminology to help you like describe inflammation, focusing on acute. And then we've got an example case of an abscess. So we have Lucinda. She's a 23-year-old novice fence balancer and she cut her leg on the fence after attempting a very challenging trick. She's now got a lump on her leg and she says it looks inflamed. I did that once, long time ago. <laughs> Were you once a, a fence balancer? <laughs> I was trying to balance on a fence, but I was I was uh, perhaps not at my peak state of balance at that <laughs> moment in time. Ooh. Mm. Mm. Anyway, back lower. to the case. <laughs> back to the case. Um, okay, cool. So... I guess she says it looks inflamed, but what does looks inflamed mean? Well, there's a few things we sort of think about when we, when we consider inflammation. Um, and there's five signs which we call the cardinal signs of inflammation. And essentially to think of these, just imagine, say, an infected finger. Um, so your finger hurts. So that's one of the five cardinal signs, pain. Um, it's red. And of course, it gets quite hot. Um, it'll also swell up a bit and it'll be difficult to move. So loss of function is the last of those cardinal signs. These are actually like really relevant to you as well, not just as doctors, but like in your personal life. Like I had a surgery a few weeks ago and then I found that I'd one of the, uh, one of the cuts into my stomach was starting to get a bit red and a bit hot and very painful. And then, yeah, turned out I had a bit of an infection. Kind of shocking. Yeah, wow. Life-saving. Mm. And I just wanted to add that whilst we know them by their typical names, so, you know, the heat, redness, pain, swelling, loss of function, they also have their classic uh, Latin names. So heat we can call calor, uh, redness is rubor, pain is dolor, um, swelling is tumor, and loss of function is functoisa. I'm not sure how the <laughs> pronunciation is. Uh, yeah, okay. So I guess... Why do we get these? These all sound uncomfortable. I don't want a red, hot, painful, swollen, loss of function limb. <laughs> um, so, like, what's the point? Basically, it's just to protect us, to protect our body from threats. Or if something's been broken in our body, we need to try and fix it. And inflammation is the process that the body goes about to do that. Unless you have a case where your body's decided to just get inflamed against itself. Um, which is obviously an autoimmune disease and that is not a very good thing. Yeah, you're right. And I guess like the general point for us, because inflammation, honestly, little long mechanisms of pathophys and weird terms of different little proteins going on, but it's in every single disease. Inflammation is in every disease. We got to know it. Um, So can one of you guys tell me, we've got Lucinda, she's cut her leg. What are the general steps that's going to happen once she's cut her leg? How is she going to heal? Yeah, so there's a few, I guess, key parts of wound healing. Um, and the first thing is the, the blood will be rushing to the area. So we've got to, I guess, sort of slow that blood down. So we get that hemostasis where the blood clot forms. And then we've got to start to focus on fixing what happened. So we start with our inflammatory effects. So that's where we get all our immune cells in and they start to destroy anything that was maybe you know introduced to the body, such as bacteria. Uh, before we move on to our proliferative step, which is where the body then begins to repair itself, um, laying down new scar tissue, and then finally remodeling is where that scar tissue is turned back into healthy skin. Awesome. Yep, so those four steps of wound healing, hemostasis, inflammatory, proliferative, and then remodeling. 
So we're going to delve into the inflammatory step far more. Surprise, surprise. So um, what things trigger inflammation? I think, you know, if you think about this from a really broad sense, the things that are going to trigger your body to become inflamed against them are basically just the things that shouldn't be there. So either um, you're dealing with things that are microbes, so bugs, um, so, you know, in the walls, um, in the cell walls of those bugs, they'll have these things called PAMPs. So they're pathogen-associated molecular patterns. Um, and the immune system is able to recognize those as foreign and incite an inflammatory response to them. Um, same as virulence factors for viruses, if they aren't hiding from the immune system inside cells. Um, you've also got non-microbial things. So your allergens, irritants, toxic compounds... Um, that the body will identify, recognize as foreign and say, hey, this shouldn't be there. Um, And also the other way that the body can kind of think about something that's there that shouldn't be is when you start getting the inside bits of the cell floating on the outside of the cell. Um, And we call those things damps. So they're damage-associated molecular patterns. Whenever you get damage to a cell, they get released. The body can recognize that and it starts inflammation. Awesome. Okay, so... We've got our PAMPs or our DAMPs, perhaps, or some kind of trigger in our cell. What's our first responders? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, So our first responders, our our first immune cells on the scene, um, are going to be those macrophages and those mast cells. So those already sit and live in the tissue, and they'll come along and they'll recognize those PAMPs or DAMPs, such as uh, Michael explained before. Um, and they'll release cytokines in response. So these cytokines act as a chemokine, um, and they attract all the other immune cells that are needed for a full immune response. Yeah, awesome. Um, So yeah, we've got our macrophages, they detect it, and they go flag the alert, trigger a bunch of other immune cells to come along. Um, Another key thing that they do is the cytokines increase your vascular permeability and they like trigger nitric oxide. And that all means that you'll have like vasodilation. And that makes it way easier to all those cells that need to come along to get from the blood into the actual inflamed tissue. Um, Another thing that macrophages do while this is all happening is they get to work eating the damaged tissue and foreign bodies. It's called like phagocytosis and they help like get rid of all of those foreign materials. Um, And so that's all the initial stuff that happens. And then we also have um, the triggering of neutrophil activation. Um, Does anyone want to talk a little bit about how that happens? Yeah, so essentially the way that it happens is those local macrophages you were talking about before, um, they release signals to these cells called monocytes, which actually hang out in the blood. They get attracted from the blood in response to those chemokines and slowly because of those changes um in the vasculature that dilatation they slow down right those cells slow down in the wall of the blood they start touching onto the blood wall so that's called adherence they roll and then they're actually able to get out through that increased permeability um within the vasculature wall and then they follow that chemokine gradient to the site where they're needed Awesome. And I just love that image of like a little neutrophil sticking to the blood cell and then just rolling along it as transport. I think that's a hilarious mechanism. Well, yeah. Okay. Um, Another extra thing that we will not delve into too much detail because it's very complicated is the complement system. So this is like a big cascade of signals involving all these complement proteins. 
Um, and we're not going to get into that because massive flowchart, you can look it up. Um, but I guess what are like the main points of this complement system that gets activated during inflammation? I just think broadly, really, the complement system is the non-cellular way that the body actually deals with its invaders. It's the non-cellular mediator for inflammation. Um, it's essentially a protein cascade. Um, so it starts off with the cleavage of one protein, which goes and cleaves off a whole bunch of other proteins. Um, and we won't go into any of those today because there's just too much. But they help by attracting white blood cells. They help by doing something called opsonizing. So all of those little proteins go and essentially like coat the bacteria, which makes them easier to eat. And then um, some of the proteins as well can also form this thing called a membrane attack complex where they can actually go and like punch holes in the, you know, punch holes in the bacteria that actually kills those bacteria. Yeah, awesome. Um, so I guess it's just extra note here of how do we actually get the adaptive immune system in play? So that's all the T and B lymphocyte stuff. Um, so there's cells called dendritic cells um, and they pick up a little bit of the pathogen, um, take it to a lymph node and activate the adaptive immune system. We're not going into details of that. That's a whole nother topic. Um, so we've got this acute inflammation happening and of course there's also chronic inflammation. Um, so after a couple of days, like more of a time scale of weeks to month, we've got chronic inflammation. Um, so what kind of cells as opposed to neutrophils, which are in acute inflammation, what kind of cells predominate in chronic lymphocytes. inflammation? Yeah. Always the lymphocytes. Lymphocytes and macrophages as well. Yeah, exactly. So keep in mind the lymphocytes there, they are the T and B cells. Uh, the macrophages, like we talked about before, they mainly come from the monocytes. Um, but we also have plasma cells, which are activated from the B cells. And, uh, and what do those plasma cells secrete, Aaron? Excellent point. So yeah, those plasma cells, they secrete our antibodies, as you guys will uh, be well aware later on. Um, we also have other cells that are present, uh, such as the eosinophils. So those are the, the IgE-releasing cells, um, and they're mainly involved in uh, allergic reactions and also when there are parasites around. We also have things like mast cells, um, which is both involved in acute and chronic inflammation. And I guess that kind of brings up a point. So just to remember that in chronic inflammation, you have both acute inflammation and chronic inflammation factors. Like it's a whole cycle of processes occurring again and again. Okay, guys. So now I have a couple, I guess, memory techniques for remembering some of the mediators of inflammation that I kind of breezed over before. Um, so one super common one is hot T-bone steak. That's a way to remember the interleukins. Um, so IL-1 to 6. So we've got hot for IL-1. And what does that mean? IL-1 causes fevers. Cool. And now we've got T in the T-bone. So IL-2, what does that do? Stimulates the T-cells, of course. <gasps> cool. And then we have bone. What's that? Well, it's our bone marrow. So IL-3 is stimulating um, all the lymphocyte production from the bone marrow. Awesome. And this is where I think it gets a little bit weird, but it's honestly worked for me remembering these. So stick with it. Steak, ignoring the ST, we've got E-A-K. So we're up to IL-4 now. E, what's that stand for? I think um, E and A we can probably do together. True. Because E and A are both just IgE and IgA respectively. And they're just like, if, if you've never heard of those before, which I'm hoping you have, but if you haven't, um, they're just different kinds of antibodies that are secreted by the plasma cells. So the interleukin just induces that switch to that type of antibody. 
Yeah, awesome. And then the worst part of this memory technique, K stands for acute phase proteins, emphasis on the K in acute with a K. <laughs> Great acronym. But yeah, that's IL-6. It stimulates acute phase proteins. Um, the other uh, memory technique I have for you guys is pro-inflammatory cytokines. So anything that could, uh, like any endogenous pyrogens. So those are IL-6, IL-1, and TNF. And my very weird way of remembering this is we're thinking pyrogens, we're thinking fever, we're thinking hot. So we're thinking like fire. And then, so the general thought I have is I think of a 16-year-old when they have a tantrum, they set fire to things. So in the movies, they do that. <laughs> so basically, 16-year-old, so 1 and 6, interleukin 1 and interleukin 6. And then a 16-year-old's tantrum, T for tantrum, TNF. Like judge judge me if one. you will. <laughs> um, and then the final thing that I think is pretty important is prostaglandins. That's another inflammatory mediator. And prostaglandins, P for pain. They're important in pain. They also do stuff like fever and vasodilation, but the primary thing is pain. Great. So, yeah. All right. So quick summary of, I guess, like the key parts of acute inflammation that we talked about before. So we have vasodilation has to occur so we've got the macrophages and mast cells they stimulate cytokines and a bunch of mediators and that stimulates vasodilation um and so because we have that it kind of explains why we have like increased blood flow to the area which makes it warm that kind of explains that cardinal sign of inflammation where it's got it's like warm hot and red so erythema um, the next important part is the endothelial activation. So we have increased permeability of the blood vessels. We have all the cells flooding to that inflamed area and then we get exudate and that explains the swelling. Um, and then final thing is we have the neutrophil activation and migration to the area. Awesome. So now taking, I guess, step back, we're looking at the morphological types of inflammation. So what can acute inflammation typically look like? You can have your pussy inflammation, so that's um, suppurative inflammation. There's another type called fibrinous, um, and that's where we have a bit more protein um, within the inflammation, and we get all this fibrin deposited, um, and it's typically, you know, the pleura or the pericardium. Yeah, awesome. And then final type is serous. So that's typically like if you think about when you get a really bad sunburn and you have that blister and it's kind of like clear fluid, that's serous. So it's very low plasma slash cell content. Um, so, yeah. Um, so I guess in terms of investigations now, obviously in Lucinda's case, we're probably not going to do an investigation. Um, but say if we did a blood test of someone who's acutely inflamed, what would we be looking at? I think the, the first thing I'd probably do, even before a blood test, would just be, like, take their temperature. Like, you can have an infection and you can have inflammation and not be able to mount a febrile response um, in some certain, like, immunocompromised people and stuff like that. But that would always be my number one go-to. Yeah, exactly. Like Michael said, you've always got to start with a good history and examination. Um, but say they are sort of suggesting uh, towards an inflammatory response and we do want to confirm it with some lab tests... The first thing we would consider ordering are the inflammatory markers. So there's two main inflammatory markers, the CRP and the ESR. So we'll start with CRP. Um, so this is more of the acute version. Um, it'll, you know, peak quite high as soon as there's inflammation. Um, compared to ESR, ESR standing for erythrocyte sedimentation rate. 
Um, and that's a bit more of a, a chronic marker, if you will. And if you think about like what that's actually saying, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, it's literally just like how long does it take for the blood cells to sediment, so basically just to sink to the bottom of the tube. And it kind of indicates how sticky your blood is because of all those acute phase proteins and fibrinogen and some other stuff like that. So that's how that test actually works to be like, yeah, this person is inflamed. Mm, sticky blood. Um, <laughs> so also quick aside, if we actually like did some kind of imaging, so maybe we did like intravenous imaging contrast on someone, um, what would it actually look like if they had an abscess in their body? Yeah, so I guess like you mentioned, we don't often do this, but if they did have an abscess um, and we did an imaging, uh, it would appear as a ring-enhancing lesion. That's sort of the, the pathognomonic term. Yeah, for sure. And so that's a lot of all the fibrosis is like the ring around it and also the increased like blood flow. You've got like all that in, in inflammation that increases the blood flow around that area. So it's going to light up on that imaging. Um, so now bring it back to Lucinda. Um, there really aren't that many differentials here because you can kind of just look at it and figure it out. But we've looked at Lucinda and we ha- now we're having a look at her, um, as she said, inflamed spot and we see that it's got some pus in it. So what are potential differentials? Probably saying abscess would be up there. Yeah, that's the main one. Um, the other thing you would check for whenever you've got... Um, an abscess is also cellulitis. So just the tissue around where she's got that abscess, like is it inflamed, is it red? Um, and then potentially that means the infection has sub- spread to the surrounding tissue. Another small differential could potentially be folliculitis. So you have more of an inflammation of a hair follicle and that can be pretty easily ruled out by like having a look and going, is this in a hair follicle or is this bigger? So Caitlin, what actually is an abscess? So an abscess is kind of like this collection of pus within the skin, so in the dermis or subcutaneous space, and it's typically walled off by fibrosis. So normally we would get a cut and it would heal. But in Lucinda's case, this healing has kind of failed and we have this buildup of the immune cells and dead tissue as a result of our process of inflammation. And then it ends up getting walled off by fibrosis. So there's that scarring that happens Um, And it's just this little sphere full of dead cells inside and that's the pus with fibrosis on the outside. So, yeah. Um, Do any of you guys know how you would tell if this is an abscess in terms of like if you were actually touching it? Um, So, yeah, I guess based on the history, you'd have, it'd be quite vague. Um, The main thing you'd look for is the chronicity that it's been there for a while um, and yeah, exactly. You'd look on the examination to sort of make that diagnosis. Uh, when you palpate it, it's going to be quite painful to the patient um, and it's going to be fluctuant. So you're going to be able to feel the move, uh, the movement of fluid inside when you push it around and it'll be quite red. You, yeah, exactly. If they even let you push it around, it's quite <laughs> painful. But. Lots true. of people do sort of scream um, in pain when you do push in an abscess. It's, it's a very painful condition. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and so do you guys know what typical things cause an abscess? Bacteria. Mm, <laughs> yes, indeed. Do you know the most common bacteria that could cause an abscess? If it's on the skin, Staph aureus. Yeah. If it's like a you know, surface abscess. Then, yeah. Awesome. That's a go- always a good answer. If it's ever on the skin, the most common uh, causative agent is usually Staphylococcus aureus. Yeah, mm. always. Not always. I shouldn't say always. but Never if- always. 
<laughs> exam technique always. <laughs> Nothing in this podcast is ever always, really. <laughs> um, okay. And then the other thing that it could potentially be, be besides an infection is a foreign body. So maybe you've had like a drug in- injection and it hasn't like diffused properly and it gets kind of caught in the dermal layer. Um, and then you start getting that like inflammation response to a toxin that you can't clear. Um, and so you've really got to, when you're considering the causes of an abscess, it's essentially any, anything the body can't get out and can't remove from within itself. So, yeah, typically infective organisms, but anything else such as a foreign body. I actually have a foreign body in my finger from when <laughs> I was like a kid. I like got a, got like a, what are they called? Like splinter. A, yeah, I got a splinter <laughs> in my knuckle. And, like, it didn't really swell up or anything. And it's just healed over the top of it. What? So now I've got this, you like... You still have a splinter yeah, in your knuckle? Look, I've got, like, a little black spot on my knuckle. Yes, viewers, please look at oh, his no. knuckle. Oh, <laughs> please note there's a, there's a black spot on his knuckle. Yeah, it's crazy. It's not an abscess. That seems concerning. There you go. Um, that actually brings up a point. Um, so generally... Um, I guess when we think about abscess on the skin, we're not too worried about the infection spreading, but when might we be worried? People who are immunocompromised. Yeah, Mm. for sure. They have weakened immune systems, so they might not have a very good ability to actually form that wall of fibrosis around the bacteria, and it could potentially, like, spread through the blood to, like, the rest of the body. Um, So how would we... What, like, signs would Lucinda be presenting if we think it might have spread? Well, if it's spread, you're going to have the more systemic signs of infection. So we're thinking much more along the lines of fever, um, just going to have vomiting, um, lots of night sweats, maybe even, you know, a bit of weight change if it's been there for a long time. Yeah. Michael, any fever, (laughs) vomiting? (laughs) I'll be honest, I tuned out for a second. Um, (laughs) But yeah, that sounded really good. I was asking about you, Michael, and your very long term No, there's no like, it's not red either or anything like that. Like, I'm still concerned. It's weird, but yeah. So, not everything in medicine follows the textbooks. <laughs> Lesson number one. <laughs> All right. So, um, Ron, I guess while we're distracted, one extra side note. Um, we're going to talk about abscess management in general. Um, and generally, we're not r- too worried about spreading. But in the case of you have a breast abscess, and someone's breastfeeding, what would you, what's a key thing you might do? Tell them to not feed from that breast. Yeah. Well, well, their baby not to feed from that breast. Yeah. We've got to remember that's still infectious tissue in that abscess. Yeah. <laughs> so we don't want it. <laughs> so we don't want it to spread. <laughs> yeah. You, um, you don't want that infection spreading to the baby. That's like a you know, mouth load of staph warriors for it. So you won't do that. <laughs> Anyway, um, but jumping back to Lucinda, so we have a look at her abscess and we see that it's about four centimetres wide, it's fluctuant, there isn't any surrounding cellulitis that we can see, so the skin looks not inflamed around it. Um, What potential management might we consider? Well, if it's quite small, um, they generally drain themselves. So anything less than two centimetres, we pretty much encourage the patient just to apply some warm compression for a few days um, and observe and see how it's going. But if it's bigger than two centimetres, then it gets a bit more exciting and we get to pull out our scalpels. (laughs) No, on the warm compression, that's not about applying pressure. That's just warm to encourage the blood flow and stuff. (laughs) Um, You made it sound like we were pushing on our very painful abscess. No, no, sorry. (laughs) 
too correct. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all good. Yeah. So then we get to um, so looking at Lucinda's, it's four centimeters wide, as I said. So we're probably going to um, incise and drain it. Um, Just stitch it back up, or no? I don't no, think you typically do. No, usually, especially if it's that size, we pack it. Yeah. Um, and if you can, you can if you want, uh, also take some cultures just to identify if it is an infectious cause. Um, and if it is, then you can give some antibiotics to make sure it doesn't uh, continue to cause infection. Yeah. Um, sometimes you can also give antibiotics without the cultures. It's a little bit debated, but in some cases you can. Um, you just got to make sure whatever antibiotics you give, like it covers Staph aureus because that's the most common one, especially with her history. She most likely has her most likely pathogen here is Staph aureus. Cool. Cool. So, all right, we, we cut it, we drain it, maybe apply a little bit of topical antibiotics and that's it. Well done. Thank you very much for tuning in guys. Um, we'll see you at the next episode. Hope you liked uh, Lucinda's case. I hope she becomes a very successful fence walker or whatever I said at the beginning. Yeah, not novice anymore. <laughs> <laughs>